My name is Chris Charbonneau, and I'm the host of the Fall of Roe podcast. I'm a 40-year veteran of the pro-choice movement. I have been the CEO of Planned Parenthoods in seven different states and have decades of experience in the pro-choice realm. This is an unapologetically pro-choice podcast. We are going to talk about the disaster that is the unfolding dismantling of the Roe standard across the United States, creating 50 states worth of patchwork laws, the danger that that poses to anyone of reproductive age and all of us who love them. We need to figure out how we as a collective are going to get through this, change this situation, give ourselves some hope and get back to sanity in this country. Hi, friends. This is Chris Charbonneau. This is the Fall of Roe podcast. And I have with me my friend and and former colleague, Sarah Stays from Planned Parenthood of North Central States. She was the brilliant strategist that worked the South Dakota campaign when the people of South Dakota decided to maintain their pro-choice law back in the day. And ably and with a wonderful team runs a giant bunch of clinics serving the upper northern Midwest, I think we would call it. Sarah stays welcome to the podcast. Chris, it is such a pleasure to be with you longtime leader of our movement. I don't know where this country would be without you. And I have been looking forward to being with you. And I'm just glad to hear your voice. Well, thank you so much. And I am glad you're hanging in there. You look uh, still alive to me. I can see you on video, even though our listeners can't. You have to be going crazy with what's going on in the news right now. Texas, Oklahoma, um, you know, one incursion into people's rights to self-determination after the other. It is an unbelievable time. And I, I have to say, after having spent over two decades planning for this moment, it is still shocking to be living in this moment. But as shocking as it is for me to live in this moment, it is way more shocking for the people we serve. And just to give you an example, we are having people come in to some of our more, even our more remote locations, especially in places where we have trigger laws and we know that Roe will, you know, if, if Roe falls, that abortion will immediately uh, be illegal in those states. Women are coming in and saying they are terrified to become pregnant because if they become pregnant, they cannot count on the healthcare system to be able to protect their health. So, for example, if they got pregnant and they had an ectopic pregnancy or some other healthcare emergency, after Roe is invalidated, there might not be anybody to help them and they could die. So they are coming in and talking with our providers and saying, I need to do something today so that I can stay safe once the Supreme Court does what it appears that they're going to do. But truly, the people that we serve are terrified and traumatized. What kinds of um, things are they asking you to do? Is it contraception or is it actually sterilization? Oh, both. But particularly, they are asking for contraception that is long acting. So we have a big spike in the request, for example, for IUDs and other long acting reversible contraception. That's something that I know people are very, very grateful to be able to still get because actually, Some legislatures, uh, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, some legislatures are actually even considering banning those forms of birth control. And women are just, I'm just frankly terrified. Think about how 
at least for my life, I have, I have been able to plan and live my life. I'm so fortunate within a framework within which I knew that if I got pregnant, the healthcare establishment would keep me safe. I knew that. So I never was afraid of becoming pregnant the way people are afraid today. And my own daughter, for example, who has one child and is, would like to have another one, has to think about becoming pregnant within an entirely different medical framework. Absolutely. We were saying before, you know, this will hurt the low income folks the most, the people of color, people who already have been discriminated against in the healthcare system in one way or the other. It impacts absolutely everybody. And if anyone thinks they're sitting in, in a safe chair with this, they are dead wrong. It definitely impacts everybody. And in fact, we already have big swaths of America, particularly the part of America that I serve, where either there are no providers who will perform an abortion, or everybody actually that does work, all healthcare providers work for a Catholic institution, and they don't know that they can even help a woman who is in some sort of, has some sort of pregnancy demise, serious miscarriage happening, or other kinds of problems, and they have to leave their part of rural Minnesota or South Dakota or wherever it is that they go and come into a safe part of our region, even today, to get the help. So, you know, in some ways, what's happening in the country right now, as shocking as it is, we've already been living with this. Women have already been living with this. Right. I think we can assume Roe had fallen at some point and that we're we're now just picking up the, the last of the pieces um, because for much of America, they haven't had this access for a while. And to your point, Louisiana the other day was toying with making treatment for ectopic or what what often are called tubal pregnancies illegal. It's like, hello, hello, people who don't know your anatomy, physiology or your medical uh, work. There is no salvaging a pregnancy in someone's fallopian tube. And if it progresses, the chances of someone bleeding out from that are massive. So it's kind of like really just, it's just death on the other side of some of the decision-making of some of these people. Yeah, and there was a legislator there who actually said that treating a woman with a tubal pregnancy would be the same as killing a baby. And he said those words, they were in print, I read them. It's just like the, the ignorance of it and not just the ignorance, but the cruelty. It's just breathtaking. Mm -hmm. If you don't know enough to legislate about these things, you probably ought not do it. Um, so <laughs> warning, warning. Sarah, talk to me about which states you work in and a little bit about what's going on in those. I work in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, and Nebraska. And I am also on the border with Wisconsin. And I raise Wisconsin because Wisconsin has a pre-Roe abortion ban on the book. So the minute that Roe is overturned, lights go out for women in Wisconsin. The same is true in North Dakota and South Dakota. Both of those states have trigger bans on the books. Uh, so in three of the states that surround our, me, where I sit in Minnesota, lights go out immediately. In Nebraska and in Iowa, there's still a little bit of gray room. Uh, so the lights don't go out the day that Roe falls, but the politics there are pretty grim. Chris, really, um, in Iowa, or sorry, in Nebraska, the governor has vowed to call a special session to ban abortion, you know, should, should Roe fall by the Supreme Court. I'm not positive if he has the votes. He may or may not. It's going to be a close call. Iowa has a 
constitutional protection in place. That's great until the conservative Supreme Court changes its mind. And the Iowa Supreme Court was quite supportive of women's bodily autonomy for a long time. Now, the conservative governor has appointed very, very conservative justices. So uh, we expect that, you know, eventually something would come to that court and overturn the right to abortion there. So that leaves Minnesota. Minnesota's got a pro-choice governor who is up for re-election this year, and it's going to be very tight. We have a anti-choice legislature. So only the governor is protecting the women of Minnesota. And we have we also have a constitutional decision here in Minnesota as well. So we've got that. But it's really just the governor standing in the way of uh, an assault on, on that constitutional protection. So it's extremely important for everybody in all of these states to focus on that gubernatorial election here in Minnesota, because he is the thing that will protect women, not just in Minnesota, but in surrounding states. And we are currently calculating, we think that there will be about a 25% increase, who knows, in people coming here for abortions. So women's lives are on the line, not just in Minnesota, but you know, for thousands of miles around us. And it's all riding on this election. Yes, we can't say it enough. Um, How we vote will matter completely. And um, I had Cecile on a podcast recently, and she reminded me that there are 4 million 18-year-olds that could potentially vote that come on every year, you know, just aging into the voting pool. And um, that's 8 million of them that haven't didn't have a chance to vote last time. And that's across the entire country, of course, not just your states, but that kind of could matter. Young people getting out and um, voting with their feet, if you will, voting with their ballots, incredibly critical uh, in that we're talking about your lives, people, and what can be done with for and with you and for a long time into your futures. What are you hearing, Sarah, about people traveling. I mean, I know that the laws don't have to change for our clients to start behaving differently because they don't know what's legal and what isn't based on all the conversations. And they they hear one right-wing politician talking about something and that they assume the door is closed for legal abortion. And they beca- begin to behave however they need to, to handle their own lives. Are you seeing any of that in, in clinics or what's going on? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Every time something happens in the press, our patients are confused and many people assume that doors are closed. And, you know, it, when, when we have been through big things like this in the past, we have, just as we are today, spending a lot of money and time and energy on reassuring the public and reassuring our patients. And, it's, you know, it's everything from direct patient outreach to social media, to marketing, to, you know, endlessly talking to the world outside of our walls to make sure everyone understands our doors are open. They are going to be open until the very last second of the very last hour of the very last day before the Supreme Court slams them shut. That It hasn't happened yet. It may happen. And we're going to be ready for it. And when it does happen, we are going to do everything possible to help women travel from unsafe parts of the country to safe parts of the country. So, you know, that's the other interesting thing. Our, our, our work is, is changing. I mean, we've always helped to an extent, 
but this kind of like acting like a travel agency, like yes. we're going to be doing, it hasn't had the centrality that it now has. And so we are hiring navigators to be in all of our call centers to make sure that when someone calls up, we can tell them, yep, you know, it's a thousand miles from where you are to where you need to be tomorrow. And here's how you can get there. And do you have enough money? And what about your childcare? And, you know, how can we help you? Can we put you up? It's really interesting is uh, how many people have come out of the woodwork to offer to put people up. It's so heartwarming, you know. It is heartwarming. It is heartwarming how many people want to help. And of course, that sort of layers on a uh, requirement that those of us on the donating end are vetted so that we're putting people only into the safest places and that we're ensuring right. that nobody gets trafficked and and all of that. I mean, it just the um, upheaval moving around, you know, three or four hundred thousand people at a time is something that, um, you know, certainly no one needed in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but but here we find ourselves. Um, but I, I think that so many people wanting to do wonderful things for other people that that can't be bad. We ha we'll just have to find a way to organize it. Yeah. And it, it's great that people are offering to put women up who need abortions, but they're going to also have to put up some women who are bringing their kids with them because they don't have anywhere else to leave their kids. And so we're traveling, not just the patient, but also family members. We had a woman in um, South Dakota not that long ago. We have a terrible situation there already where, where you have to come in twice. There's a 72-hour wait. So you have to come in on Monday in person. You have to be told things that are not scientific and are not medical and are totally ideological, but we have state, state propaganda, right? The state totally state-mandated propaganda and it's a script and we have to read it. They have to come in, they have to be subjected to all that. And then they have to come back on Thursday to have their procedure. The same, and we have no doctors in South Dakota that work for us. So the same doctor gets flown out on Monday comes back to Minnesota, then gets flown back out on Thursday. The whole thing is, it's just, it's a crazy logistical nightmare, but it's really hard for the women. So this particular person drives in three hours on Monday. She brings her four children. Her four children have to sit there in the waiting room under, I mean, like, how much stress is that? And then she has to bundle them in the car after she's been told things like, you will be at lifelong risk of suicide and depression if you go ahead with this procedure. She hears all of that. She's to go back out, collect her children, reassure them, put them in the car, drive three hours home, and then come back and do the whole damn thing again yeah. on Thursday. It is inhumane already. Well, and it was designed to be, right? I mean, the cruelty is the point. The The senselessness of it is the point. Making abortion as inconvenient as it can possibly be is the point, right? I mean, you know, it's punitive. It's not like they really believe that having to come twice is going to make somebody who's made this decision not do it. They just want to punish her while she does it. It's so cruel because they, they actually do damage to people. It doesn't stop a woman from having an abortion that she needs. But it can damage her. It's traumatizing for her, not to mention her children. Sure. And these are people, obviously, oh, we care so much about children. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I've already said, yeah, you know, tell that to someone else. These are not people who care about this. You know, I mean, today we're, we're as we're recording this, we're the day after the shooting in, in Texas. And um, we, we have the same platitudes coming. There are 19 
kids in an elementary school that were alive yesterday that are dead today. And we get nothing but thoughts and prayers from those folks that, you know, if they cared about children, they would care about the ones in kindergarten, too. Um, This is about making sure women can't make decisions that they need to make for their lives. Yeah, I I read uh, yesterday that there are over 420,000 children in foster care in America waiting for some of these compassionate conservatives to adopt them and give them homes and love them. But no one is coming for them, Chris. I know. Can you imagine if we added 800,000 more people to that list each and every year? Right. Who who will come for them? Who will come for the children? I mean, is Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas and his wife, are they going to come and take care of these children? No, they are not. They are not. And none of their friends are either. Mm-hmm. No. I mean, you know, 420,000, I've read four, as many as 450, depending on which, you know, counting methodology you use. And uh, yeah, absolutely. These kids are languishing uh, often in um, temporary homes for lack of parents. People want desperately to be parents. They can go there. But I'm seeing a real disconcerting uh, narrative coming out of the right wing now that this is about making sure that white women have babies, about this replacement theory that they have. And it's that the country is going to be not majority white at some point, and they're terrified of that. I myself think that would be kind of cool, but they're terrified about it, and they are trying to engineer in a whole variety of ways that outcome, and this is what that policy looks like on this end. No shortage of racism involved in this. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, although it it is also true that... um, the fall of Roe will drive up the birth rate among BIPOC people who are already disadvantaged economically and will have an even harder time getting abortions. So the whole thing, I mean, the whole thing is just makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, a total disaster for everybody. Yeah, we're, we're an embarrassment. Chris, this country is an embarrassment globally, truly. Not just the turning our backs on women and what we need, but turning our backs on children and families this way? Who else has such little support for families than the United States? Who else, aside from just a few extraordinarily right-wing countries, does not offer paid family leave, for God's sakes, to help a woman once she gives birth? We don't even have that. And it's very, very hard to swallow the, you know, moralizing that is coming from the other side about the sanctity of life when the sanctity of life concept only applies to a group of cells that aren't even viable outside the womb. Mm-hmm. When, we, when we ignore it in every other way. We ignore those kids when they need um, extra food or breakfast or or a little bit of help before they go to school. I mean, it's outrageous, outrageous. Right. The thing that gives me hope, though, is that since this leak has occurred, people have been really angry. Just a couple of days after the leak, 5,000 people showed up right outside our door. 5,000 supporters on their own. We didn't organize them. They organized themselves. They showed up, the lieutenant governor showed up, two U.S. senators showed up, and they're furious at the idea that this is going to happen. We also have been um, operating a, um, a, a canvas, a door-to-door canvas here in Minnesota since March, 
trying to raise awareness about this issue. Since the draft was leaked, our canvassers are reporting that almost every door they knock on, they are met by a potential voter who is absolutely infuriated and talking to everyone they know and planning to go to the polls. So we could see some real good come out of this. The other thing that I think is really interesting and and the thing that we've learned a lot here over and over again in in Red America is that some of the language about pro-choice, pro-life doesn't work very well because it presents abortion as this sort of binary. You're either pro or you're against. And in fact, there are a lot of people who are neither pro nor anti, but have capacity to empathize with a woman who would want to make that choice. And so consequently do not want abortion to become illegal. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that are giving me a lot of hope right now too, because they are the ones who are standing up and, you know, demanding that empathy be extended, even if they themselves have feelings of moral ambivalence about abortion. So I do think it's also time for us to have a more sophisticated conversation about abortion, especially in some parts of the country where just waving a binary flag one way or the next doesn't not capture the way a lot of people feel. Oh, I I totally agree. I couldn't agree with that more, Sarah. There are a lot of especially younger people who don't like to be put in labeled boxes. And, you know, it's like, don't don't call me pro-life. Don't call me pro-choice. You know, I just am pro-justice and I am pro-fairness and I am pro what people need to do because I don't want to paint anyone into a corner. And, um, you know, I, what I might do myself might vary over time and, and what other people might do might vary over time. But I don't want to box anyone in in that way. And that gives me hope that that's that's who uh, we raised, you know, for subsequent generations as people with that kind of generosity of spirit. Yeah, that's what I'm seeing, too. And I, I do I do feel really, really good about that. And um, if they overturn Roe, I, I think it will be at their political peril. They will lose power in this country. If they do it, I do think that's true, but I'm not taking anything for granted. I'll tell you that because the right to abortion, the right to control one's body is about freedom. And it is the essence of democracy that we be able to control our bodies without being able to control our own bodies. Democracy is meaningless. And so what is at stake here? is abortion and it is also democracy. We will have a slide into autocracy if this is not stopped. And that is also why I think it will be stopped because I I don't think our country wants that. I think the vast majority of people in our country absolutely do not want that. And it's just a question of people recognizing how far we've come. I mean, one of the things that's been shocking to me as I've been talking to so many people around this podcast is how surprised we all are that we we have gotten here. I mean, you and I have sat in rooms for decades planning what we would do if this day ever came. And I think in all of our heart of hearts, we just thought nobody would be stupid enough to actually do this. And, you know, yet it is the logical outcome of this long buildup of the Supreme Court justices in their seats, all the other justices in the various states where they prioritize that. And now we're at the point where we are writing checks on the bodies of others, other people 
for this political ideology. And I don't believe it can stand, even if it goes into effect for a while, to your point, I think that uh, they caught the bus they never wanted to catch. And there could be huge backlash. But I worry, as I know you do, about who gets injured between here and there. I know. That is the thing, Chris. Um, there will be human casualties during this period. There's there's just no doubt about it. You know, as much as we talk and are working hard to raise the money and raise more money and raise more money so that we can help people, people are going to fall through the cracks. They definitely are. And I, I mean, they already do in South Dakota and North Dakota. They already do in spite of our best efforts. People are already being compelled into childbirth and parenting. And I, I know it's, it's just going to be a, a hard time. But it, it is also really a call to action for all of us uh, to step in. You know, there were so many people pre-1973 who created networks to help women move around, to help them pay for their procedures, to try to save as many lives as they possibly could. Of course, they couldn't save anybody, everybody but the same networks are being reactivated again. It's dystopian though. Oh, it's so dystopian. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I, you know, I read The Handmaid's Tale in in the 1980s and it ruined an entire decade for me. Not that it wasn't accurate, um, you know, but uh, I wasn't able to watch it on Hulu because I couldn't bring myself to do it because it it was hitting way too close to home. Same here. And yet, you know, we find ourselves in this place and with so many younger women that I just have every fear for, women and girls and people who don't identify as women anymore, but were born with uteruses, all those folks who are in now deep, deep trouble in not only this state, but every state. How are you and your team who are caretakers for all these people in these tough places holding up through this? Well, thank you for asking that question. It's been really rugged because people don't come to Planned Parenthood if they are not to work, if they are not already deeply morally committed to the mission. And the last few years have been so difficult anyway. I'm sure that a lot of the listeners know about the rate of burnout among healthcare providers across the board, there is a level of fatigue. There are levels, there's a level of uh, turnover and staffing shortages that then lead to more fatigue and more shortages. And it's been very difficult to keep all of our clinics staffed. That's true all across the country. That's true, not just for Planned Parenthood, but, you know, all, all of healthcare. And, and we know it's going to get worse. And so you take a group of highly dedicated, motivated people who are already very, very tired and then throw this on top of them. And I'm not going to lie. It is, it is hard. It's really hard. I, there's no doubt we're going to lose people actually because of this, because, and it's not, it's not like they're going to walk away because they don't care. It's, they're going to have to walk away because they do care so much. And just to protect themselves they may have to walk away or step away. Right. To maintain their compassion as the compassion of people we know them all to be. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm concerned about it. Yeah. Very difficult. And you didn't mention this, but you all were still overcoming the defunding from the Trump administration years of the basic birth control services that we were all using to make sure that people didn't 
end up in these unintended situations. Has that been rectified? Has that come back? No, not really. I mean, it, it came back in it came back in part of the region, but it did not come back in in all of the region. And when it came back, it didn't come fully back, so we didn't get the full funding back again. And of course, the funding hadn't exactly been increased with inflation over the years, so it was flat anyway. So it basically decreased every year. And then what's also happened in in the, the you know the highly red states is that. Um, they have ended our ability to participate in whatever family planning program might have existed. So that occurred in Iowa and, you know, uh, so on. Other states ban us altogether from participating in Title X. They're not really supposed to do that, but they do. So that's what you want. You want to make abortion illegal and you want to make the largest provider of contraception across the 50 states unable to provide contraception. I mean, there there are parts of this that if they weren't so ludicrous, you know, none of it's funny, but it's also unimaginable in terms of any kind of logical policy and that there you sit. And it's not it was deliberate, obviously, to weaken the independent providers, to weaken Planned Parenthood so that when this happened, you know, we'd all be on our knees. That's that's part of the whole gestalt of the the attempt. Right. Yeah. It's so strange because there's not, you know, some sort of linear intellectual throughput that's, you know, that links banning abortion and banning birth control. It doesn't make, it doesn't make sense to do both if you're really advocating to not have abortion. It doesn't make any sense. And yet there it is. So it's just very difficult to argue with people who hold both of those things at the same time, very, very difficult. And then you say to them, okay, but what about the children after they're born? What about them? And they say, well, you know, we're going to make sure that they have diapers. Well, diapers, that's good, but you don't eat diapers. You know, a diaper can't pick a baby up and hug it and love it and sing to it and kiss it at night. And one package of diapers does not a two-year diaper stint make, right? (laughs) Right. It's a diaper, for God's sake. Yeah. It's a diaper. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really- that, those are those those fake uh, helpful gestures, you know, that are not really helpful. I'm going to give you a onesie and a package of diapers. Didn't I do a wonderful thing? Exactly. Um, Yay me. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> there is this self-satisfaction part of this on the part of some of our opposition that as you say, doesn't hang together intellectually in terms of what needs to happen. You know, if you're going to force birth on hundreds of thousands of people who didn't want to be giving birth right now, it's mistimed, unplanned pregnancies, unwanted pregnancies in many cases. And then when they give birth, you turn around and say, now they're part of the 98% who take from the rest of us with money. And so we're going to offer no, no care, no services. Thank you, Mitt Romney, for that visual you know, you end up with a really skewed, unfair, unworkable system. And to do it deliberately to ourselves, it's unthinkable. Although, as we keep saying, here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Yeah. You know, the the motto of Planned Parenthood used to be every child a wanted child. And 
it had such beauty. I'm not sure why we walked away from that. There must have been a reason. We, we rebranded or something at some point. But, <laughs> but I mean, it was it's a it's such a beautiful kind of encapsulation of our values. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's not just the, the children. We also care about them, mothers. Maybe that's why we walked away from it. I don't know. But but this idea that every child deserves to be born into a family or place in which it is loved and revered. Mm-hmm. A loving and prepared home. And, you know, what could be better? That's always been the goal. And and we found ourselves in a 50 plus year fight to try to make just pieces of that a reality. What has surprised you most about this, Sarah? I mean, we've all been thinking this might happen for decades, but what's surprising you? What surprised me the most is how angry people are and how much support we have. I did not expect, I hoped, but I did not expect to see this this outpouring. I gave a speech um, last Friday night um, at a Democratic convention in, here in Minnesota, and I was like, 1,200 people. And it's not, I mean, they're not there for abortion. They're there for politics and all the things that they do. I was just astounded at the number of people who came up to me afterwards to tell me their story, to thank me, and to tell me how angry they were and what they planned to do about it. I mean, it truly, Chris, I've never had an experience like that in my 21 years at Planned Parenthood where there was, there people were lined up to throw their arms around me and burst into tears with their story of gratitude and their pledge to do something. That surprised me. It did. Uh, Well, I love that. That's a good surprise. Yeah. And people, people were telling stories all over. Like one story was, I was pregnant. I came to Planned Parenthood, you know, thinking that I, I needed counseling about abortion. And the more that they talked to me about all of my options, the more I thought, well, maybe I might want to keep this baby. And you all encouraged me to do what was right for me. And I did. And I kept the baby and I'm happy I did. And that's one kind of end of the spectrum. And the other end is, you know, something else entirely. Like the the woman who said, my 15-year-old daughter became pregnant with a 15-year-old boyfriend and they loved, 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 loved each other, you know, and they, they wanted to spend their lives together and so on. But, you know, cooler heads prevailed and the parents four parents talked with them and, you know, they eventually, the, they did decide, the young woman decided to have an abortion and that was the right thing to do so she could finish high school and go into college and so on. But she stayed with this young man and eventually they both got out of college. They had jobs, they got married, they now have three children and they have a successful family. And that would not have happened if at age 15, they'd had to drop out of high school. It would not have happened. Uh, and she said, this is a resurrection. Looking at my daughter and her husband and their three children, I am looking at resurrection almost every day from where they were when they were 15 and where they are now. And it's thanks thanks to Planned Parenthood. Wow. Yeah. The other thing, Chris, that's I think is really interesting. We've always, we've always known one in four women in America have an abortion. Okay, but that's a well-known fact. We know that. It is also true that of those one in four women, there is a man, somebody with some sperm. Um, <laughs> that's part of this too. And usually that person, woman, also has a friend or a mother or a sister or some other people that she is close to and they know about it. And so 
abortion stories aren't just the stories of the people having the abortion. They are the stories of everybody around them too. And I think it is to say one in four grossly underestimates the number of people who are affected in a positive way by abortion in America. Everybody in America, I think, I bet, everybody has an abortion story somewhere. Their aunt, their grandmother, their so-and-so, their friend, whatever, they all have stories. And when I started to really understand and think about the vast reach of abortion and see it all kind of breaking open in this fury and anger and pledge to fight back, and also these tremendous expressions of gratitude to abortion providers for helping save people's lives and help them resurrect from whatever it was to where they ended up. It, it's, it's quite profound. And we need every one of those people that have been affected positively to show up at the polls and vote that way in order for this to create an about face. I think nothing but the scariest set of primaries in their lives is going to affect Republican policy. So to sort of recap a number of things we've been talking about that people can do, you can buy early pregnancy tests, as we've said, in the places where they're having earlier and earlier bans in the in-between. Make sure that everyone knows their status early on if anyone suspects an unintended pregnancy. Long-acting reversible contraceptives are our friends. Like, take them like your life depends on it, because if you live in a red state right now, it very well might. Everybody register, everyone you know, get everybody out to vote. There's going to be no substitute for that. Volunteer with your local abortion fund, your local Planned Parenthood, your local independent clinic to be some kind of help to people as we navigate and have to be incredibly flexible. I mean, we have now 50 states in play, one way or the other, doing all kinds of things to either mitigate these harms or that are actively part of these harms. And a whole bunch of us scrambling everywhere else that trying to figure out how we prevent people from really running into terrible situations. And, um, you know, educate yourself. Read the turnaround study that was done that that talks about, and you can find it under turnaround study on the internet, that talks about people with forced pregnancies, forced birth, and what happens not only to that person, but the the offspring in that matter. And help yourself understand there are no good options down this road. And listen and learn to podcasts like this and and others and speeches by people like Sarah. I think that it's going to be so important for us all to be engaged on a level we have not had to be engaged for a good five decades. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you, you wish I'd ask about, Sarah? I just haven't. No, but I think the other thing you could add to your list of things that people could do, they could stock up on emergency contraception. Yes. So they've got it in their medicine cabinet in case they need it or someone they love needs it. There are also people who are stocking up on mifepristone, the drug that causes abortion. Yep. You can get it through aid access, just like spelled, just like it sounds, online. You don't have to be pregnant to secure it. Urge people in all 50 states, while it is still legal in all 50 states, to get that and have some in your cabinet. It takes a while for it to expire. And you might just find someone who is in need of that dose. And tell your abortion story if you have one, because right now, stigma busting is right at the top of our list. And, and people are doing that. So if you haven't told your story, even if you're only telling it to one person, tell it. 
And if you don't have an abortion story, help other people destigmatize this by being upfront with your support of people who have sought the, this care in the past and um, who might need to seek this care in the future. Also, everybody, let the young people in your lives know that you're a safe place to come and talk about this. In one of my other podcasts that, that will be posted soon, attorneys talk about how they would take risks to help people in these situations at this point. that They, they feel pretty good about their odds uh, of not getting prosecuted for any of this. Keep in mind, if, you know, uh, 100 million Americans a day help people get abortions, there are not that many lawyers in the world to take us all to task at the same, same time. I've wondered, Sarah, how in the world the right wing intends to re-stigmatize something that people have seen as a right for 50 years. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I think it's going to be hard to put that genie back in the bottle, Chris. I really do. I do, too. I, You know, I mean, many of us don't feel shame. Our, our grandmothers had the disadvantage that they felt ashamed about these things. And, you know, premarital sex was sort of almost a crime. Well, it may have been a crime. I don't, you know, a lot of people committed it because 1957 was the high water mark of unintended pregnancy. But, uh, you know, that that ship has sailed, Sarah. I'm not sure how they do it. It sure has. And I think it's it's like it sailed on birth control for sure. Yeah. So putting the birth control genie back in the bottle, I, I mean, there will be riots in the streets. Yeah. Yeah. Are you really going to tell a whole bunch of moms in tennis shoes that they're aborting a child every month when they take a birth control pill? It's like that's not how it works and nobody believes it. I mean, I realize that things don't have to be true anymore um, for, for <laughs> some of the some of the political environment to say it like, you know, like it's gospel. But but uh, I just don't um, I don't see how they make us all feel shame about something that we all know is such an unmitigated good. Right. And where sexuality, human sexuality is not viewed as shameful the way I mean. When I was a teenager, honestly, it, it felt there was there was still some shame shaming going on, especially for girls. But that's, that is so not the case for my daughter's generation. So not the case for them. They're open and expressive, and I, I just I, I can't see going back. I just can't see going back. Hard to imagine uh, instituting the theocracy that they are after when people have never been further away from respect for that kind of thing. And it's built in hypocrisies. Yeah, it's just not it's not the way people live now. We live differently. Yeah. But thank you for everything you are doing in your whole life to prevent dangers to people and um, and horrible harm and the trauma that you have been so articulate in talking about on this podcast. I heard the other day that for every shooting victim, there are 20 truly close to it traumatized people. I think the likelihood is the same for people having to make these tough decisions, that there are all kinds of people around them that would be adversely affected if people can't make the best decision for their own lives. And uh, all the people who try to care for these folks who so valiantly come to work every day. Um, my love letter and thanks to all of them engaged in this and to all the people trying to change the administrations to make sure that uh, the votes are there for, for the American idea and individual liberty. Well, Chris, you're my longtime hero. <laughs> and um, you made so much of this possible in our country for so long. 
and we wouldn't be sitting here the well, way we are. Certainly not alone. Certainly not alone, friend. And you know, so my kudos to you who are still fighting, getting up every morning and going and fighting this. And I will be thinking of you every morning until we find out about the Supreme Court decision. And hang in there. Hang in there because you all are are pulling that laboring oar and all the docs and clinicians and and assistants um, that are sort of fighting through their fatigue to make this happen. Uh, America owes you a huge debt of gratitude. We are privileged to do the work. Thank you, Sarah Stays. And thank you all for listening to the Fall of Roe podcast. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for listening, friends. This is Chris Charbonneau. It's been my pleasure to host this broadcast for you today. And if you'd like to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and give us a five-star review. If you'd like to connect with me in some way, please go to fallofrow.com for information. Thank you.